Hey, uh, this is E.A. Gamore. Thank you so much for clicking play and joining the Unpacking Africa podcast, where I explore ecosystems in our communities and figure out-ish on the African continent. Join in, follow at 4IR Africa on social media, and let's stay engaged. This month has been incredibly eventful, with quite a number of countries seeing a second wave of the coronavirus as they grapple with ways to open up borders for economic activity and still advise citizens on social distancing and some levels of lockdown. This episode, we tackle Black enterprise in light of the Black Lives Matter movement that sparked from the United States and spread all over, especially during Africa Youth Day in South Africa which highlights some of the atrocities that happened during apartheid. This episode features two guests, Brian Mishangura, whom I met at an EdTech event and has come up with a fantastic app for collaboration conferences and meetups digitally, and Nike Anane, who's incredibly passionate about African family firms. She is formerly from Deloitte in the UK, currently in Nigeria. Stay tuned. Thank you so much. I know we both have been looking forward to having you unpack Africa for a couple of weeks now. I'm very happy to be here. Like you said, it's been a couple of weeks in the making, but I'm just glad that we finally got to uh, put this together. Yeah, man, I'm really excited. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Can you please introduce yourself to the audience? What is your current role at where you work at? My name is Brian Munyaradzimushongera, born in Zimbabwe, but currently based in Johannesburg, South Africa. And I am the business development manager for Room.sh. We both met at an EdTech conference where I was a facilitator on technology and education. Yes, definitely. We met at EduTech last year, which is an education-based expo hosted by Terrapin, which was my former employer. And of course, you were facilitating a lot of the talks over there, which was excellent, giving perspective, not just from a South African perspective, but from West African uh, perspective as well with a lot of the other speakers that we had there, which, you know, at the time I was very much invested in the events game and the events business. And that event actually changed my life as well, because that's where I got the the bug to kind of get into the ed, uh, the education industry and, and join the edtech community because actually that's where I met my colleagues Dom, Annabelle and Matthew. Actually a funny story is that Matt and I actually went to the same primary school I and mean, that's how we kind of just like we just kind of realized that at the event and it was just like a, a, a wonderful moment and we really kind of got together and really to know each other quite well at the event. And I really loved what he was doing in terms of the product that he had, which is Code for Kids. You know, we had a lot of great conversation and just going back and forth on like, you know, how we can actually properly prepare kids for a digital future. And just through those interactions and the conversations that myself and Matthew had, I knew that, you know, this is where I wanted to be. This is the kind of community that I wanted to be in. And this was the impact that I wanted to have on the world where I was able to prepare children for a digital future, which is excellent. You know, Code for Kids is all about integrating real coding into primary schools around the world for grades four to seven. And, you know, just before the whole pandemic, we were doing quite well and just growing that business. You know, we've been able to kind of spawn an, a new product to kind of help the world and uh, during this time. Fascinating. And thanks again for the compliment earlier. So what made you decide to create Room.sh? So Room.sh is a video collaboration tool, which we created to help companies work more efficiently and work better online with all the tools necessary to actually collaborate. You know, for example, Room.sh 
has a whiteboard, a digital whiteboard. So with that, you can scribble, scratch, draw, like diagrams, you know, just like an infinite multi-directional canvas, basically for, for anything that you want to do, you know, importing PDFs or documents, you know, screenshots, as well as having a document tab, uh, a digital document. So that is something that you can use to take notes or write in long form. So you can write and edit together as a team. You can import Microsoft Office documents or, or Google Docs and just put that in there in that document tab. And everything saves automatically because room.sh is a cloud-based, it's a cloud-based product. Um, so there's no need for install. Everything will be exactly where you left it every time you enter and exit a room. So you don't have to worry about things being lost or deleted or, or not being secure. As well as kind of the other tabs that we have in the platform is a code tab. And so if you're if you have a development team in your company, our code tab is something that your your development team can really use to kind of work together with the video, obviously there to kind of collaborate and work well efficiently. As well as just obviously you know having the video there that's always going to be there no matter what uh, tab you're in. And you know like everything that we developed is really just trying to get all of the tools necessary for any company in any industry to actually properly collaborate because we realize that a lot of companies that use Zoom are kind of limited to just talking to each other without actually being able to collaborate or having to go to a different application while on the video call to, to collaborate. So instead of that, we decided to just create all everything in one. Your video is constantly running. Everyone can collaborate on the same page. You can write your minutes. You can draw if you're creative. If you're if you're a, a programmer, you can use the code. Um, so really, Room.sh really just has all of the tools necessary for effective meetings. I've personally been kind of like a little zoomed out, but meetings have become like a necessary way to continue staying engaged during these times, right? So it's actually interesting to hear. Uh, for us by us platform for meetings during these times. We realized that the whole world at the moment was affected by this by this pandemic and everyone is going to be working from home. And with that we knew that room.sh would be very important to help create an environment where it can be business as usual. Not just during COVID-19 but be but beyond because you know this has kind of shown the world that we need to have a digital office and we really want to help uh, provide a tool and a system that can really help transition companies, whether you're small or large, to to have the, a digital space where your team can effectively collaborate no matter what the circumstance. Thanks, Ryan. Room.sh is a favorite on my tabs list with the free to use for a less than five person video stream room and less than $20 per month, the pro and less than $100 for the business options. And of course, for the super like large businesses with unique needs, the enterprise model, the website is pretty dope and pretty easy to use. Thank you so much for sharing. Speaking of which, how have you been dealing with the pandemic personally, professionally, and what's been the response to Room.sh? Right. I think, you know, this pandemic has really you know, shifted a lot. No, not just for us, but for the whole world, you know, a lot of industries were heavily hit. And, you know, before we decided to create Room.sh, we, we realized that uh, what we were actually focused on was, uh, I mentioned it earlier, was uh, building Code for Kids, which is our main product, which I mentioned was integrating coding into primary schools. And, you know, prior to the pandemic, we were really going well, going strong. We just entered into our third continent at the time. 
And that's when this pandemic hit and obviously everything just, you know, drew to a halt. And we realized that instead of looking at this as a as an opportunity to kind of be down, we looked at as at we looked at it as an opportunity to be up. We live by something in our company where we say that, you know, begin with the end in mind. And we kind of re we re looked at everything and decided, you know, what can we do to best serve people during this time? You know, since we can't focus on this product, what can we do? You know? And we realize that having the resources to create something like Room.sh that is gonna change like business for a lot of people, um, being able to collaborate, being able to work, you know, being able to just be business as usual, but obviously from home, I think it was great for us, you know. So we really looked at this pandemic as as an opportunity and not as as a crutch. Excellent. The phrase using or finding an opportunity and not using this pandemic as a crutch resonates, especially because that's how this podcast kind of came to life. What does a typical day for you look like, Brian? A typical day for me, <laughs> I think this should be like a two-part question. It should be like, what is a typical day for you before COVID-19? And what is a typical day for you after COVID-19? But a typical day for me is, you know, wake up in the morning, go for a run before starting work, and then just grinding and hustling. I think that's the, the like a, a typical day for me, Monday to Friday, you know, just have a run just to kind of get myself mentally and physically ready for the day start getting into my work trying to spread the word and try and help as many businesses as possible by using our tool and after that you know just taking some personal time just to kind of uh, you know introspect watch movies play video games and kind of just look for the next move as the levels kind of decrease here in South Africa you know so that's pretty much a typical day for me during COVID-19. Thank you, Brian. Your daily routine definitely resonates with me. As an expat in South Africa, I've taken stock of Youth Day recently and Black Lives movement in the United States, as well as corporate ceilings based in race in South Africa. I'm keen to hear your thoughts on these advocacy and social issues at this time. <sighs> yeah, it's... um. Like the way you phrase this question is it's actually perfect because if you look at the parallels between the things that happened, you know, Youth Day all those years ago and the Black Lives Matter movement currently, like the parallel is, is really incredible because if you think about it, you know, at that time in South Africa, tensions were really boiling to a point between the police and, and people of color. And you're starting to look at what's happening now in 2020 and tensions are boiling to a point, you know, with people of color and the police. And if we're starting to look at where South Africa is right now, because of what happened back then, as a country and as a nation, we've been able to develop a lot more. You know, racism is still alive, you know, and it's still there in different forms in South Africa. But at the end of the day, just all of that pain, all of that tension, it was able to give us a platform to where we are as a nation, where a lot of black people have equal ground, you know, and even though we've been able to make a lot of progress, we all have our, we still have our own issues as a nation to address. 
you know, with some inequalities and government and, and all of that. But I guess that's a conversation for another day. But looking at where America is right now, they are reaching that point just like South Africa was where real change could be on the horizon. You know, it's going to be painful to see. It's going to be painful, you know, to experience, especially if you're there protesting every single day. And not just in America, if you look at Europe, where a lot of people, uh, minorities, not just black people, like Indians, Hispanics, and people in Australia, all over, all over the world are coming together because they know that, you know, racism is still alive. And at this moment where there is hardly any distractions because of this COVID-19 pandemic, this is a powerful moment for us as people of color, whether you're Hispanic, whether you're black, Indian, Asian, whatever your creed or color, this is a great moment for us to really bring change around the world to help, you know, alleviate the pain that comes with racism. Racism will never really truly go away because, you know, it's a mindset. And even though a beautiful thing about being a human being is that everyone is different, you know, the bad side is, is that there will people who will think very differently to you. You know, slowly changing the mindset will obviously help us along the way in terms of decreasing the number of people who feel hate towards people that aren't white or people that aren't the same as them. But this is a great moment for us to really, really make an impact. You know, in America, passing laws that really takes away power from the police because just the amount of power a police, the police in America have is really scary to see. And I think it's, it's so sad to know that living in the U.S. currently as a black man, as a black woman, as a black child, you leave the house in fear because you don't know if, if you'll make it home that day because you, were, you, you just managed to cross lines with the wrong officer. And no person on earth should be able to just live with fear like that. Like no one deserves to live with fear like that. Everyone should be able to leave their homes not worried that they'll be murdered by the people that are paid and trained to protect them. But I think, you know, wow. Um, there's so much to be said just with racial tensions and even looking at, looking at it from a business perspective, it's going to change a lot. I think we've seen quite a few companies, you know, show their support for the movements as well as some sports organizations and all of that, uh, which is really great. But the proof is in the pudding, you know, when they start really putting, you know, minorities, people of color in positions of power within governments, within uh, job roles. In, in bigger organizations and bigger companies. And that goes for women as well. Uh, we shouldn't forget about that as well, that women in corporates are not given enough um, and enough opportunity uh, to really develop and, and become CEOs, owners. You know, we've seen a lot of change, but there's still quite a lot of women who are, you know, currently struggling with that. But this movement really does give us a platform to rewrite the book when it comes to that. Thank you so much for your thoughtful response. And... Being a black person that's lived in the States myself, a lot of what we're advocating for, for black lives that should matter, that do matter, um, really has translated into a lot of work that I do with other organizations and continue to do. And hopefully we can actually rewire mindsets around racism and how it's 
for generations disenfranchised us economically, physically, mentally, and emotionally. Another social issue within the South African context that I wanted to glean your insight on is gender-based violence and the increase in child abuse fatalities across South Africa. And if you could share a little bit on that. Gender-based violence is really... (laughs) It really is a sad thing to obviously witness, you know, and to see happening because it really is a a pandemic in itself, as the president said recently. And it's really making us rethink a lot of things, you know. Obviously, we've seen a lot of women call out for action, call out for change. My whole thinking with this whole pandemic and with gender-based violence is that we, as men, need to take a lot of responsibility. And when I say take responsibility, we need to redefine what a man is. We need to redefine how men treat women. Because at the end of the day, if you look at what the definition of a man is currently, a man is the dominant person. You know, a woman is submissive to a man. You know, a man is more powerful than a, than a woman. And these are things that are taught to a lot of men through religion, through, through culture. Because of those teachings, it's kind of given this false idea in a lot of like, men's minds that, a women, that women are, are not equal, that women are just disposable to them because you're a man. So to really tackle this pandemic with gender-based violence is we really, really need to redefine what a man is. We really need to strip that away. You know, the entitlement that a man feels just because you're told that's how a man is. And accompanying that is also being able to strip back the layers that a man cannot share his emotions, that a man cannot ask for help, that a man cannot share his emotions and feelings with other people. Because too many times, you know, you're told as a man or as a boy, men don't cry. So now when you've taken this generations of of learning of how a man should be and you're being told that a man just deals with his feelings, he doesn't share his feelings. And as human beings, everyone goes through their own personal problems and traumas, which we all need to kind of get through. So if you mix that with, with the entitlement and the power that a man has been falsely given, we end up with what we have right now, which is a lot of men who are lost a lot of men who are broken and a lot of men who feel entitled and end up abusing women and children. And I think, you know, it's a sad thing to see, but I think as men ourselves, we need to take responsibility and, you know, check in with our friends, you know, not be afraid to ask for help. If you're having, you know, anxiety, if you, if you're feeling any kind of way, if you need help, just dealing with any kind of issue, you know, I think too many men spend tam- too much time together, just like it's either we're watching football or we or we having drinks or, or whatever, but we're not really talking. You know, we're not really helping each other get along with our daily lives, you know. And also at the same time, it's so important for us to challenge our friends, you know, call out your boys. If, if you see your friend is saying something to a woman that might be out of line, doing something to a woman that is out of line, we are responsible to make sure that we check our boys. You know, we need to be able to tell our friends or, or, or anyone that this is wrong. 
And this is why it's wrong, you know. And again, changing the mentality of what a man is and what a man should be, you know. Like, nobody is, is born racist. Nobody is born evil. If all of these things are just learned through life experiences. That's why it's so important for us to communicate, to seek help. And I really hope that, you know, at some point, you know, the government can create a movement where where men feel comfortable expressing their feelings or not being afraid to seek help, uh, creating centers or groups for uh, men to have conversations and and get therapy. Because at the end of the day, you know, we're all individuals, we need help. And this is ultimately going to help protect our women, you know, to really kind of change gender-based violence forever and protect our women and, and our children is we need to change men we need to change how we are we need to change how we speak to me, uh, women how we see women we need to see, uh, we need to change how we interact with women you know and i think that all comes from having that conversation being free and being comfortable enough to share and seek help you know and i really hope that we can reach a point where we can really create this movement of redefining what a man is within our rural community rural communities within our schools to prepare our youth for the future and as well as creating a, pl a platform for older men to really join that discussion and really help them in that transition of getting out of that older mentality to really help redefine what a man should be and how a man should see and treat a woman because, you know, our women are terrified and no one should be able to, no one should live with fear. You know, no woman should feel as if I'm leaving the house and I'm not too sure if anything will happen to me. Like no woman should feel like that. No woman should feel like they should dress differently because they're scared of how a man might see them, you know. A woman shouldn't feel afraid to be in a space around men. So I think, you know, with with this gender-based violence pandemic that we're suffering right now, we really, really need to make a change. And I think it really starts with us. Wow, I think you hit the nail right on the head, especially on the call for redefining what a man is. But a movement, right, so that is so large and big that has the support of government but it's also inclusive and is focused on mind shifts and making sure that we create spaces that helps men seek help, but also make sure that our women and everybody in the family feels appreciated, loved, and safe. Those are really, uh, really inspirational words. Thank you, Brian. And do you have any platforms that you would love for our listeners to engage with, be a part of, or you'd like to speak to? I don't really have any uh, social justice platforms for people to get involved with, but uh, something that I am passionate about is a, a nonprofit called Rich with Smiles, uh, which is focused on providing food, clothing, and uh, schooling equipment to kids who really need it here in the, the northern part of Joburg. So if you'd like to get involved and make any form of donation, whether it's food, clothing or anything, just go onto Facebook and search for Rich with Smiles NPC. 
um, and all the information is basically there. You know, your help would be greatly appreciated to help those children in need. Excellent. One of the trademark questions of this Unpacking Africa podcast is for you to future cast. So what is the way forward and what are you personally looking forward to in our future? There's a, a phrase that I live by and it's advice that I actually give to some friends and family that are close to me, which is don't let things happen to you. Let them happen for you. That is all about hope and it's all about optimism. You know, things might be looking dark right now things might be looking low right now but have hope have faith that things will get better even though things might be hard we always need to try our best it's better to try and fail than not to try at all i really do believe the way forward is hope and optimism i really hope that people can hold on to that hope dealer (laughs) that's awesome i definitely see you What are the ways in which our audience can stay connected and updated with the work that you do? To connect with us, please do have a look at our website, room.sh. You can sign up for free, try it out for yourself, try it at your next team meeting, try it with uh, some of your other colleagues for your side business. Go into room.sh, have a free trial, have a look at it. And we really are excited for people to just get onto this platform, use it, and really reap the benefits of trying to get business back to normal during this time of isolation and and lockdowns. So please do have a look at that. Have a look at our Code for Kids website as well, which is getcodeforkids.com. So G-E-T-C-O-D-E, the number four, K-I-D-S dot com. If you'd like to have a look at at Code for Kids and, and what we're doing with schools around the world. Got it. I'm a huge fan of Room.sh and Code for Kids. And thank you so much for sharing honestly and authentically. Obviously, just thank you again for having me here. I really do appreciate it. This has been a great experience for me. It's been also a challenge kind of just having to think a little bit about some of these questions and kind of articulate it in a way that I, I really hope is best. So, Emmanuel, just thank you again for for this great opportunity that you've given me and given us as a a small company. And we are really looking to collaborate and work with people. So, people, if you would really like to get in touch with me yet again, you can uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. My name is Brian Mushongera, B-R-I-A-N-M-U-S-H-O-N-G-E-R-A. Let's collaborate. Let's work. And let's make this world a better place. Thanks for having me. This month has been incredibly challenging to articulate my thoughts. I found myself having difficult conversations, starting off a conversation with the former president, Olusegun Obasanjo of Nigeria, and in kind collaboration with the Brent Hurst Foundation, as well as Heavy Chef. And it was a multi-generational conversation looking at ways in which we can rebuild our African economies, but also future caste systems that we have not seen on the continent for economic growth that leads to sustainable development. And as much as it was really exciting to hear and share, it was also a bit daunting. And the reality of the situation that we're currently in could leave one really feeling a bit hopeless. I hope that this episode and speaking to passionate young folks who are taking the reins, creating business opportunities that are global-facing and legacies that are multi-generational, you get hope.
and you are inspired. I also had a personal note to share specifically around Black Lives Matter. So my father is half Francophone, speaks fluent German, and lived in Germany, the United States, was in Ghana when he met my mother, who studied in the UK, but decided to also move to the United States and have my youngest sisters in the United States as well. So not only am I multicultural, multinational within the West African region, but my family also has a sister who's a dreamer in the United States, second generation African American. But I live in South Africa where structural systems that disadvantage specifically folks of black skin is still apparent and difficult. And for me, it's been having these conversations that one, you get to grow up and understand, kind of have to cope with, particularly as a black man, and then also be aware of all of the other disadvantages that so many folks go through, be it as a woman, be it as part of a minority group, be it as a religion that is not appreciated, and figuring out which ways can we develop systems that are inclusive, that are responsive, and that ultimately make the world a better place. Hopefully, as we go through this podcast journey and through different seasons, some of these things come to light through examples in ways that we also can learn. But if you have any insights that you would love for me to include in the next episode, especially around this, as we go through this time of reimagining what police forces look like, what state opportunities look like for multiple people, please let me know. Up next, thanks so much for joining Nikkei. I'm such a huge fan of yours, the work that you do, as well as your podcast. Thank you, Emmanuel, for having me on the Unpacking Africa platform. It's really an honor to be here. I've also been looking forward to this conversation. I've been following your podcasts for a few weeks, and I am really impressed with your work, and I'm a huge fan of your work as well. My name is Nike Anani, and I am from Lagos, Nigeria. Amazing. Uh, share with our audience, what do you do, Nike? That's a tricky question because I do so many things. I'm a bit like you. <laughs> um, but I'll sum it up in I am a next-gen mentor. I mentor next-gen, second-generation family members working in family businesses. That's one hat that I wear. And a second hat that I wear is I'm also a co-founder of a network of African family businesses called African Family Firms. And my third day job is I am a family business insider as an ex-gen in my parents' businesses. We have a couple of operational businesses in construction and real estate, so I'm an executive there, as well as I am an executive of our family office. So those are the three hats that I wear, <laughs> juggling all the balls, but... They're all closely intertwined and they all define me and reflect the passion that I have for family businesses. As an ecosystem builder, family firms in Africa is a compelling topic. And you share that it's personal to you that you see family firms succeed. And I'm so keen to get into more of your thoughts around this. My passion to see next gens maximize their leadership potential is really influenced and inspired by my inside experience as in Exchange. So I have deep empathy for my market and my clients. And naturally, the work that I do at African Family Firms is to provide community for these next gens such that they have a shoulder to lean on, support. And I really do think that community is under stressed 
in this side of the world. We talk about community in the sense of culture, right? We are a very communal people, but we don't talk about community in terms of providing support to business owners and business insiders. And I think in business, it can be quite challenging. It's a heavy cross to bear, particularly in family business, where we have this desire to want to keep things private because it's matters that are about our family. But we do still have need for help. But there's a fear that no one will understand our situation because a lot of support systems, a lot of advice is curated and geared towards corporates, MMEs, SMEs, without taking into consideration the fact that over 90% of indigenous businesses in Africa are actually family businesses. So that's really the inspiration behind what I do is to you know, put the focus back on the missing middle. Family businesses have really been neglected for too long and to help them in giving them a voice. I love that you mentioned the missing middle. And I'm such a huge advocate for legacy and things that outlive one or two generations and have such a profound impact. And so it's really exciting to hear and connect the dots in ways in which not just any firms, but family businesses specifically help with national development growth in our communities. I really think family firms have a huge role to play in rewriting Africa's economic story. So as I alluded to, over 90% of our businesses are family businesses, yet there was a study in Nigeria that said that only 2% of Nigerian family businesses make it past generation one. And so when we analyse it from an economic standpoint, it's clear that family businesses have a huge role to play in economic development and sustainability. In a continent where we have such high levels of abject poverty, this is critical, right? Yet most of our policymakers focus on policy, right? Government spending, capital projects. Little focus is spent on how can we help family businesses to thrive and to be prosperous across generations. Really, why I got into this space and became super passionate about this space was inspired by a personal experience that I had where I, a friend of mine lost her father and it really brought to life that 2% statistic. It was no longer this flat number in a report. It came to life where her father died prematurely. He had a terminal illness and he died within a few months. And my friend was in her late 20s at the time. And as soon as he died, it was just a nightmare, to say the least. It was just that classic experience that a lot of us have. Unfortunately, it's too prevalent where the founder of the business dies and the business just collapses. And then the financial security of the family is then challenged. And so watching her go through grief and anxiety at the same time was harrowing. And it really inspired me to think, it really doesn't have to be this way. I had spent a lot of my childhood 
adulthood and beginning of my career in the UK. And I worked in Deloitte in Corporate Tax International. And a number of our clients were family businesses, family businesses that were generations old, fifth generation, sixth generation. And it made me began to reflect, why is it that we don't see many family businesses like that on this continent? And so like I've explained, I really do think family businesses have a huge role to play in championing our economic prosperity. Not only that, they play typically play a huge role in community. And in Africa, our economic development hinges on community. So typically, a founder would be interested in supporting projects where he or she is from, in his or her village, have build a school, build a road, contribute towards philanthropy back in communities. And it's through these acts that we really do see economic growth. Not only that, family businesses are huge employers of labour. And so when we think about it holistically, we see that family businesses play a huge role in Africa's story. Speaking of employment, how have you been dealing with the pandemic personally, professionally, and the response to the economic effects of businesses? And what do next steps look like? 2020 has been a year of change and surprises. Like most people, I started off the year with great plans. Plans for the year, not only this year, but for the decade. And it was in that zillness that an enthusiasm and excitement that I started off 2020. I remember in February, I went on a trip to Mauritius. I came back middle of February and it was like a different world. Suddenly then a lot of conferences that I had planned to attend, a lot of events that I planned to attend and organised had to be cancelled. By March, everything was upside down. Total lockdown. Children were off school. We were all sitting at home and it was like, is this life? <laughs> Um, So initially, it took some adjustment, a huge adjustment, emotionally and mentally. I was fighting denial, then there would be anger, then there was fear, anxiety, and then there was negotiation. So I literally went through the five stages of grief. And initially, it took some time to adjust to our new schedules, our new routines, our new lives. It took putting up boundaries to protect my emotional wellness, because the first week, I literally was just slouched watching the numbers on CNN just escalate and just in fear. But I realised that that was really not helpful or healthy and I had to focus my mind on positive things. And so as I wrestled with that fear, anxiety for our businesses, our lives, my family, um, myself and my co-founder, my partner in African family firm, Sissy Mutendi, we were both inspired to be a pillar of support to the community that we believe we've been called to serve, and that's family businesses through our work in African Family Fund. I will never forget on the 27th of March, Sissy calls me and she's like, we'd been talking all week that week about just how harrowing this was, how scary it was, and what do we think our market is going through? And the beauty is we are our market. My partner is also an entrepreneur herself. She has several businesses. And so we were really worried about our businesses, about our families. We just wanted to be of help. And so on the 27th of March, um, Sissy's like, I've got the idea. Let's run a 21-day conference to help family businesses through this difficult time. And off we ran. And 
it was just the most amazing experience where we had about 84 contributors from 20 countries. It was just a wealth of information on how to thrive emotionally, how to thrive in our families, how to manage our finances, how to you know, manage our families in the business, how to deal with governance in difficult times. And so those 21 days were like therapy for me. It was in those 21 days that I accepted our new reality about the pandemic and my joy was restored. It was in those 21 days that I was then able to focus on the bigger picture and the new future ahead. And I was led to a number of new ventures to start, new investments to consider. So it was a season of new beginnings. So the pandemic has been a challenge and it's been difficult to see, obviously, lives have been lost. It's had a negative impact on our businesses. For instance, we have a construction business and for five weeks we were totally shut down, which means no cash. And but we had to get really creative and unwind investments outside of the business, support the cash flow to keep salaries being paid. We had to renegotiate some overheads and things like that. So it had it was a season of a lot of uncertainty, but I do think that I do think something has shifted. Obviously, we're not back to normal, right? Um, our economies are not the same. Our businesses are not the same. Our lives are not the same. Um, our children are still being home- homeschooled. Our business is open. Our offices are open, rather, and we do have some staff working from home. So things are not the same, but there's certainly um, th- the atmosphere is different from what it was like in March. I think it was very gloomy in March. Um, there was a lot of dread in March. In terms of next steps, I do think that foundationally, as leaders, we have to turn to our emotional well and wellness. In absence of doing so, we can't be effective leaders in the home, leaders in business, and it's only from a place of a sound mind that one can truly see opportunities and pursue them. So I think that's that is foundational. The second is to remember that doom and gloom is not, <laughs> it's not automatic. Um, in moments of adversity, there's still businesses that thrive, right? There's still industries that do well, right? The healthcare industry has been doing well. The biomedical um, field has been doing well. FMCGs in terms of supermarkets and things have been doing well. Pharmaceuticals have been doing well. And so how can we pivot our businesses such that they're more aligned with these businesses that are viable? How can we pivot our paradigms to be online? How can we pivot our markets? How can we pivot our products and services? So I think it's um, my mentor, Matt Church, said moments of disruption are the best opportunities to reinvent and redefine ourselves and I think that's so apt so the world is going through a huge moment of disruption foundationally who is Emmanuel as a person right who is Emmanuel's family and who is Emmanuel's business I think we should use this opportunity to reinvent and redefine ourselves such that we can then pivot to see to be in alignment with the future world, right? 
if we internalize 2020 as this mistake, as this pause, as this year that's been cancelled, as I often see on social media, as this year that's been aborted, I think we will lose out tremendously. Instead, if we tell ourselves a different story, storytelling is perhaps the most persuasive way of influencing and not only influencing other people, but also ourselves. So if we tell ourselves a different story, right, that this moment of disruption is to enable me to redefine myself, to become a best version of myself, enable my business to redefine itself, enable my family to redefine itself. I think we'll forge through this crisis stronger. We'll be resilient in our minds and our emotions. And that resilience will follow us through into our families and our businesses. This is incredibly inspiring, Nikkei. And I'm a huge proponent of families, family businesses, and family businesses that stretch out for community advocacy and support, especially during these difficult times. As a family woman yourself, what is a typical day like for you? A typical day. Hmm. In these times, it's interesting. So homeschooling. So I try to wake up a little bit early, like at five, and just to get a few hours of work in before the kids wake up. So try to do a couple of hours of work, just checking emails. And then once our boys wake up, we've got two boys, age five and two. <laughs> it's over. It's over. Once they wake up, like, the electricity, like the atmosphere in the house just completely changes. And so, yeah, the focus then goes on to them. Homeschooling from about nine to one, whilst trying to also check up on emails in between and managing, you know, putting out any fires that may be in the business. And thereafter, from one to about five or six, then I get to my Zoom calls, my meetings with clients, with partners, with mentors, with coaches and the likes. So that's the typical day, but there's no such thing as typical. (laughs) So like a couple of weeks, I had a few board meetings because as I mentioned, I'm an executive of our family office and our family office's investments are like venture capital. So we invest a lot in businesses and mainly in Nigeria so I'm on the board for instance of a real estate company that's undergoing a listing so we had a board meeting a couple of weeks ago that week I think I had three board meetings that week and so I didn't have one hour of homeschooling because like all my mornings were just completely gone (laughs) I had so much activity with my mentees my my next chance that I mentor with African family firms as well, we had a lot of partnerships that we were undergoing, conversations with people like yourself. So yeah, there's no such typical day, but by and large, 60% of my days are what I described, you know. You sound like a superwoman, juggling many balls and still really pushing and churning out new initiatives during these times. One of the interesting things that has become quite topical is Black Lives Matter and violence against women in Nigeria. And I'd love to pick your thoughts on some of these social issues and how they may be impacting you and those around you. Hmm. I was talking to a friend and I said, this season is pregnant with pain. The heaviness of the season, like, 
you can feel it in the atmosphere the second you get onto any social media platform, most aside from LinkedIn, like Facebook, Instagram. You just feel it. There's so much anger and pain, unresolved pain for generations, right? Black Lives Movement um, is so sad that we shouldn't have to be here in 2020. We really shouldn't have to be here discussing the same things that our forefathers were discussing. Martin Luther King's dream, who would have thought 70 years later, we're so far from it. But what I really, I'm reflecting on at the moment in this season is, it's unjust, it's painful. Generations of pain do not, they're not eradicated overnight. I was listening to a podcast and a gentleman mentioned that in the genealogy of pain, Right. So when you and I go through a traumatic experience, we pass it down our lineage for 14 generations and it actually alters ourselves. For me, all I've been thinking about predominantly is how can I heal from pain? Because we all have pain. Right. I grew up in the UK and I grew up in a very white area. By and large, I didn't experience too much racism, but I did experience racism. I do have sore spots in this and it's been a season of me reflecting, releasing that pain. Once I've released and healed from that pain, now it's what can I do? What's my contribution to ensure that my children don't go through this? Because it's absolutely unacceptable. When we look at the future trajectory of our dear continent. By 2050, our population will double. By 2050, one in four people on the planet will be African. Currently, our median age is 18. So the face of the world is going to be black. Our next generation must be visionaries and solutionaries to our world. If our world is still erecting barriers for them to do so, how heartbreaking and how detrimental is that to development of our globe. So I've been in a a season of deep reflection about this. Deep, what's the word? Um, Not despair, but just deep disgruntlement. Like, I'm not happy with the situation at hand. But in saying so, I think we do all have a lesson from this. This is not about just the white population to learn about the hardships Blacks are going through. I think we all have a lesson to learn from this. And I believe it's empathy. I think the lesson that coronavirus has taught us and Black Lives Matter have taught us is that when we neglect the least fortunate and we assume that their problem is not our problem, it comes back to our doorstep. We ignored China when they were having the Chinese virus, as Trump would call it, (laughs) and... We didn't help, and it came to every single one of our doorsteps. We ignored the plight of the black man for generations, and look at what's happened. It's come to all our doorsteps. So what's my privilege right now? Because I believe we all have privilege. I might not be a man. I might not be white, but I'm of a certain status. I do have some clout. I have influence, right? What can I use How can I use my privilege to make my world a more equitable, fair world where all voices are heard? And the world that I control the most, that I have control over, I don't have control over the White House directly. (laughs) I don't have control over Asso Rock directly, maybe through my votes, maybe through advocacy. But the world that I control is my home and my business. So am I being fair? I mean, when we translate Black Lives Matter 
to Africa, I think the conversation is, are we tribalist? And for some reason, it's socially acceptable in this side of the world to say someone of a certain tribe is X and I don't deal with someone of a certain tribe. I think that's completely unacceptable. We are so diverse as a people. On this continent, we have so many tribes, so many ethnic groups. How beautiful will it be if we work together in harmony and are a force to be reckoned with, collaborate over different social issues, and we have so many, so many to solve on this continent, right? So I think for me, it's been, like I mentioned, reflecting over my pain and actively working to heal from that pain. And secondly, looking at what is my privilege and how can I use my privilege to give a voice to the voiceless, make my world a fairer place, make my world a better world, such that when our children are 21, 25, 30, they have opportunities to be changers, change makers on their continents and in the world, solving relevant social problems. Thanks so much for clearly articulating the pain during these times, but also for unpacking the privilege that we have that gives us agency and the nuance and additional othering that we do when we have tribalism and other ways of discriminating against other people. So a bit of a follow-up on that, in which ways can men be better allies, empowering our women and identifying the state of affairs on our continents and doing better. Allies and men can listen. I think that's the starting point, is don't make assumptions. Listen. Black people, females, we don't need sympathy. We need empathy. There's something sympathy does. It disempowers the so-called victim or oppressed. It's condescending and patronizing, whereas empathy gives them that power. Solving the problem may not look like the most active thing, if that makes sense. So what I mean by that is it may not look like you being an advocate on the hills, marching. It may not look like you've been able to overturn policies, right? It may look like you sitting across a black person and listening. It may look like you sitting across women that have been violated sexually or women that have had experiences of this and listening. I think those that have privilege have responsibilities to educate themselves as best as possible and inform themselves of of the reality of these struggles, not to assume, so that they can listen. These are both gender sexual violence and racism are as a result of generations of endemic societal flaws. They will not be solved overnight. We shouldn't be in a haste to run to solve without really listening to what the problem is and what has contributed to this problem. In the era of in the area rather of gender sexual violence, a huge piece is in African homes. We're not holding young boys and young men to the same standard as we hold women. We need to talk back, speak to the raising and upbringing of boys. So allies, there's a lot you can do that doesn't look like picketing, being the most vocal, or writing something on social media, making a new diversity and inclusion policy. There's a lot of listening that you can do, a lot of 
work you can do to challenge when you come across people with perverted, disgusting views that have no place in our 21st century world. Thank you, Nika, again, for sharing honestly and authentically and for encouraging us in ways in which we must pause and listen and be part of growing sustainable solutions in our communities for societies we want and we want our children to grow up, live, and thrive in. So in which ways can our audience, podcast listeners, collaborate with you professionally and on passionate platforms um, that you care about? So at African Family Firms, our mandate is to champion the continuity and prosperity of family businesses on the continent. And we do so through four main activities, networking and community building, providing a platform through which family businesses can network with one another and create communities, education and training, research, research with learning institutions to get more data on this topic, to get more data on the makeup of family businesses, which industries are they in, how old are they, you know, and the likes, and as well as what issues are plaguing them and the way forward. And lastly, advocacy. So as an association, our mandate is to have chapters in all 54 countries in Africa, and that's our focus for the rest of 2020, is to establish 54 chapters in each country, where each chapter will have a maximum of 20 families. So an intimate space in which they can confide with one another and share with one another. So our key focus right now is to find people that are interested in heading up chapters across the continent, to also partner with universities that are interested in research in this space, and to also partner with people that have the requisite skills to provide training and education. And if you fit the bill in any of those three, please get in touch. My email address is na at nikeanani. Excellent. We'll have the email via the podcast notes as well, so audience members can reach out to you directly. And to my favorite question, what are you looking forward to? I am looking forward to an Africa where power changes hands. <laughs> so I realized that my passion for next chance is really, in family businesses, is really about a passion for the next generation in society. I think our culture in Africa we have a lot of elder dominance. We're the youngest continent on the planet, yet we have the oldest leaders in government. So the average age of our leaders, I think, is 62. Um, yet, like I mentioned, our median age is 18. We have a crisis of underrepresentation of the young. And this same dynamic is reflected in family businesses. So I'm looking forward to young people really rising to the helms of leadership and taking their place as leaders in governments, in society, in business, so that the issues that are dear to them can be represented. Because the risk that we face is our world has changed. It changed in February, right, with coronavirus. And we've been accelerated into this fourth industrial revolutionary world. And it's us young people that understand that world. So we have to come to the table. We have to find our voices. Another thing I'm looking forward to is to see the role the diaspora will play in, the African diaspora will play in nurturing this family business space in Africa. I really do think they play a huge role. So diasporans, um, capital flows from remittances are the greatest influence onto our continent, greater than official aid. 
greater than foreign direct investment, greater than portfolio investment. And so diasporans are already used to bringing their capital onto the continent and investing in businesses. Can they do so in a formalized way? Can they do so in a systematic way? And there was a study by AFDB that said that actually emigration from Africa has a positive effect on Africa. You know, traditionally we talk about how the brain drain, losing the best talents, the best doctors, the best engineers and things to US, Canada and the UK and Europe and things like that. But this study concluded that actually their leaving was good for the continent in the sense because they would have knowledge transfer. They would, when they're in the US, they will probably mentor someone. They will probably transfer their skills somewhere, right? back home. And the study also concluded that the higher the level of education that the emigrants had, the greater the impact on our continent. And so I'm looking forward to a future where we tap into the skill set of those in the diaspora that have worked in the best companies, had the best education that can lend their skills to family businesses on the continent through informal advisory, formal board memberships, and give family businesses on the continent a greater worldview. I think a lot of us assume that the challenge family businesses have is one of finance. Not necessarily. It's also one of skill. It's one of vision. It's one of strategy. And I think those in the diaspora can really help with doing so more effectively. I truly appreciate the additional linkage between family businesses, foreign direct investments, and the tie-in with Africa and Africa's diaspora and the impacts that they've traditionally had on not just um, investing in businesses, but also knowledge transfer, scale transfer. And these reports that you cited are incredibly helpful. I would love to keep going on. Uh, but yes, the podcast, at least this edition, must wrap up. It will be absolutely awesome to convene again on different platforms and delve more into family businesses as they relate to ecosystem building. And your insight has been incredibly exciting. I'm still glued listening to you speak, but thank you so much for making time and for joining us on this episode. Thank you, Emmanuel. As I mentioned, my website is www.nikiaanani.com. I'm available on Instagram at nikiaanani, Twitter at nikiaanani, and Facebook. Equally, our website for African Family Firms is www.africanfamilyfirms.org. Thank you very much. One of the things that has been a common theme about the Unpacking podcast is discovering ways of building ecosystems on top of enterprises, firms that create industry in a way that is impactful and hopefully not just for wealth creation, but also for knowledge transfer and development. Personally, I practice what I preach. One of my favorite all-time sermons when I was a child was when a pastor said that you must smoke what you're selling. In this episode, I share a little bit about a social enterprise that I started half a decade ago called Uridi. Uridi spelled U-R-I-T-H-I means legacy in Swahili. When I returned to Ghana in 2012, I wanted to find a sustainable, consistent way that I could not only give off my tithe and first fruit offering, but also my talent and skills 
and opportunities for young people who are behind me. So besides volunteering with Rotary, joining Global Shapers, volunteering and collaborating with other people's organizations, I started consolidating some of the workshops I was able to do once I, I was able to convince partners that I worked for. And a huge shout outs to the Google Ghana team and YouTube for letting me host Huddles, which wasn't initially part of my KPIs, but was funded by Google to help me train quite a number of social enterprises in Ghana on a weekly basis. Shout out to Impact Hub Accra that helped fund a five-week free-to-attend-and-participate training program for young folk. Shout outs to the Voice of America Radio, Broadcasting Board of Governors, and the team, especially from DC, that allowed me to host fully paid for training programs for journalists in West Africa and Southern Africa. Shout out to the Echo House team that helped us implement an ambitious project called Project Find and to host entrepreneurial programs for students in Cape Coast, in Kumasi, and in Accra, combining three or four university campuses with each of these visits and reaching out almost a thousand young people. So even though Riddy had started off as a media platform to engage, teach, and employ young people on the continent, Riddy then transitions to labs to have this full umbrella where once I do these trainings, a lot of the young people then I plug into kind of becoming Avengers for consultancy services. And thanks to partners like Ahaspora, the Ministry of Tourism, Ghana Tourism Authority, and Team A Thousand Words Photography, different organizations, both locally and internationally, have been able to create full circle an opportunity of not just giving fish, but teaching young people how to fish. And so during this pandemic break, I've had the opportunity to kind of revamp and create a new website with a digital presence, www.rithimedia.com, U-R-I-T-H-I-M-E-D-I-A.com, has been a showcase for quite a number of the workshops that I've done over the last half decade. But I've also thought of making it a call to action so that if any of this resonates with you, this idea of for us, by us, creating black enterprise that supports a lot of young people on our continent. And I do have a specific bias because in my professional capacity, I get to work for global companies. I get to do workshops in different European, American, Asian countries. But Uridia is specifically targeted for home, that I can help with knowledge transfer and skills transfer that goes to specifically African young people. I created a page that has a brief paragraph about Uridi's being the transfer of my father's legacy because he was incredibly generous, but he didn't have or create kind of an organization that was an umbrella movement for the consistent output of his labor of love. Uridi is an extension of what my father used to do, and I would love to continue to do these free intervention programs. But as I start to have systems thinking, I also want to reach out if there are folks who want to partner with us, help me. I would continue to do this as a lifelong project, but I would be able to reach not just hundreds of people, but thousands and tens of thousands if I'm able to get your help in kind, your expertise, your resources, your network, and when you want to or feel inclined to, your donations as well. And if this resonates, please check out www.readymedia.com. There's a 
founder's voice as well as father's legacy that shares the story for you to be able to donate and i would be happy to send you ready media merch including personalized thank you cards and pictures of events that we host especially when you decide to be an implementing partner for this legacy this is my specific way of also holding myself accountable as i have these conversations about black enterprise thank you as always Look out for the links and opportunities to engage in the podcast notes at the bottom, wherever you're listening to this podcast. Thank you so much for clicking play and joining the Unpacking Africa podcast, where I explore ecosystems in our communities and figure out ish on the African continent. Join in, follow at 4 Africa on social media, and let's stay engaged.